Take out your Bibles and let's open up together to the book of Romans in chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And this morning we will look one last time at this gospel verse. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now we've spent several weeks unpacking the meaning and implications of three crucial words. Jesus is Lord. This morning, I want us to talk about how it is that we confess that truth. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He is the sovereign over all things. We as Christians hold to the crazy notion that a man from Nazareth died for the sins of the world and has been risen from the dead and given power over everything in heaven and on earth. Before Jesus, we believe we will one day all stand and give an account. The keys to death and Hades are in his hands. And your life and your destiny is in the hands of Jesus Christ. He is a sovereign Lord. He is a supreme Lord. He is a good Lord, a just Lord, a merciful Lord. He is a Lord worthy of our worship and worthy of our allegiance. But it isn't enough for us just to know this because our verse says that we are to confess this. And you see why this is important, right? We're talking about salvation here. We're talking about whether you will spend eternity in the torments of hell or eternity in the wonders of heaven. In fact, look with me at verse 10. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So in both verses 9 and 10, believing and confessing are given as necessary conditions for being saved. And this raises questions. So let me give you a made-up example, but one that is true to real people's circumstances. Philip has been a terrible husband. He has hurt his wife through lies and angry words and even unfaithfulness. And over the course of more than two decades of marriage, while he has become more selfish and lazier and takes her for granted, his wife has found a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His wife became a Christian. And she has new relationships, relationships at her church, and especially a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
She prays. She reads her Bible. She's seeking to grow in knowing more about Christ. And yes, she gets fed up with Philip sometimes. She doesn't always respond well, but she is trying. And more than that, she's praying for her husband. In fact, she has been praying for her husband to be saved now for many, many years. Well, one night, Philip explodes. Uh, Work has not been going well for him. It has been getting clearer and clearer that his family is in serious financial trouble. He's been drinking too much for too long and his health isn't great. And under, under all of these stresses, he responds to an untimely word from his wife in a very sharp manner. He yells at her. He cusses her out. And then he does what he's never done before. He hits her. And she flees the house. Now that night, Philip felt worse than he had ever felt. He couldn't believe what he had just done. And overwhelmed by guilt and overwhelmed by shame... He does something else that he's never done before. He goes to the nightstand and he grabs his wife's Bible and he starts to read. He's desperate for anything to help him. He starts reading in the Gospel of John just because that's where his wife's bookmark happens to be. And and as he's reading, he's seeing the notes that his wife has made in the margins of the text. And so he's reading the text. He's reading the notes that his wife has written in her Bible. She's not even in the house, but through her notes, she's leading him to Jesus. And when Philip read John 3.16... He remembered that verse from his childhood. And he read it again, and he read it another time. And for the first time, it finally clicked for him. Jesus came to die for sinners. I'm a sinner. Philip now felt that more than he had ever felt it before. He now has begun to understand that his only hope of heaven, his only hope of ever changing from this rotten man that he has become, his only hope is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And right there by his bed, not even sure how to pray, not even sure what he's doing, he, he just calls out to Christ and says, Christ, save me. That night, Philip went to bed feeling better than he had in a long time. He knew that whatever it meant, he believed that Christ was going to change him and that Christ was going to save him. He couldn't wait till he woke up in the morning. He knew the first thing he would do was find his wife and make things right because he believed that her prayers for him had finally been answered. But here's the thing. In God's providence, in many ways, due to Philip's poor choices throughout his life, Philip died in his sleep that night. He suffered a massive heart attack. His wife found him the next day. Here's the question Did Philip go to heaven? 
did Philip go to heaven? Verse 9 says, we must confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10 says, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Philip that night called out on Christ to save him, and with the grace that God gave him, he truly believed on Jesus Christ. But he died before he ever had a chance to confess that to another person. There are some who would argue from this text that Philip did not go to heaven. Because if you have not confessed, you are not saved. What do you think? So I want to address that issue by giving you two reasons that I think in that particular circumstance, Philip would have gone to heaven. Okay, Two reasons why I don't think verse 9 saying that we must confess Jesus as Lord to be saved means that a person who dies before they can publicly confess faith doesn't go to heaven. Let me explain why I think he would have gone to heaven. Here we go. Number one. First, salvation is by faith alone. Faith alone. The same Paul who wrote Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, also wrote the rest of the book of Romans. And already, well before we get to Romans 10, Paul has well established that the way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone just a sampling of the evidence Romans 3:28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law Romans 4:3 for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 16, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. More recently, Romans 9 verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. So much of the book of Romans has been to teach this truth. We are made right with God. We are counted righteous in the sight of God. We are therefore saved and go to heaven by faith alone. And with so much of Romans having been about this very truth, I don't think we suddenly get to Romans 10 and Paul suddenly adds on a work. I don't think we suddenly get to Romans 10 and Paul says, yes, salvation is by faith alone. Oh, but I forgot one thing. You have to make sure you have a public confession. It's the one work you have to do. If Scripture interprets Scripture, and it does, then we know that Paul is not adding public confession as a work which must be 
done in order to merit salvation. Sola fide, salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. And then second, no one who has true faith and has opportunity will keep that faith hidden. And that's the point here. Paul is drawing his thinking in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, from Deuteronomy and the verses that he just quoted in Romans 10, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Just as in Old Testament Israel, they were to have the law of God on their hearts, and therefore they were to talk about the law when they woke up, they were to talk about the law when they went to sleep, they were to talk about the law when they walked down the road, they were to talk about the law when they sat down for a meal. So what we saw in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 is Paul says Christians are to be people who have the Jesus that the law always pointed to in their hearts and therefore on their lips. Christians are people who are talking about Christ when they wake up, when they go to sleep, when they're walking down the road, when they're sitting down to eat. That just as Old Testament Israel was to have the law in their hearts and therefore often on their lips, so Christians are to be people who have the Jesus that the law pointed to in their hearts and often on their lips. He's making a comparison, and he's making this point. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. There is no such thing as someone who gets saved by Jesus Christ from the fires of hell and the power of sin and then keeps it quiet. It's not about the person who never has opportunity to confess their faith. It's saying, here's the way to know whether your faith is legitimate or not. Real Christians make their faith known. It's not about those who die before they can profess their faith. In part, I think what Paul's thinking about here are the trials that are about to come to these Roman Christians. Remember, it is likely that many of the people who originally received this letter from Paul would themselves later be arrested and put on trial and some killed because of their confession of faith. And when the lions are before you licking their lips or the blade is at your throat or they've got the rope tied to your ankles and attached to a chariot, at that point you might be tempted to think that confessing Jesus isn't all that important. You might begin to justify and rationalize all the reasons why being a closet Christian is okay. And when you see these things happening to your fellow believers, you might think it's a good idea to keep your conversion a secret. But what did Jesus say? Matthew 10, 32, 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, the moment you claim that you believe that Jesus is Lord over all, and yet you're too afraid to confess that to others, you're showing you don't really believe He's Lord at all. 
If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is in control and that he is working all for your good, then, then you know you never have any reason to be ashamed to confess him, no matter what it costs you in this life. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you with confidence confess before the world that Jesus is Lord, even if they mock you, even if they treat you as a fool, laugh at you, or even kill you, you will not ultimately be put to shame. You will be vindicated. Because on the last day, every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, I take issue respectfully with those who think that Romans 10, 9 through 10 is adding a work that must be done to be saved. I think the point's pretty clear that any person who has true belief in their heart that Jesus is Lord will live a life of confessing that and will confess it with their mouths as they have opportunity. Now, I want to close out our study. Five weeks we've been on these verses. I want to close out our study by ticking off just 12 ways. Don't get scared. We're going to do them quickly. 12 ways that we as Christians confess Jesus is Lord. Some of these are ways that we confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth. Some of these are ways that we confess Jesus as Lord with our lives. Uh, Paul is here focused on confessing Jesus with our mouths because he's comparing Christians in the New Testament with Israel and that passage from Deuteronomy from the Old Testament. Remember in his day, there were Old Testament Israelites living right alongside New Testament Christians. Paul was an Old Testament Israelite before he was converted and made a new covenant Christian. Paul was one who used to often have the law of God on his lips. Now, as a Christian, he still often has the law of God on his lips, but he has something else that he loves to talk about even more. His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that comparison with Deuteronomy, he's thinking first about confessing Christ as Lord with your mouth, But he would also agree, I am sure, that we confess Christ as Lord with our lives. So let me mark off for you 12 ways. And as I do this, see if you are confessing Christ in these ways. Number one, we confess that Jesus is Lord through our baptism. Growing up, I was taught differently. Growing up, I was taught that our first way of professing faith in Jesus is by walking an aisle. That is nowhere in the Bible. What is in the Bible is the call to repent, to believe, and to be baptized. Over and over again, as we read especially the book of Acts, we hear the call, repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Turning from our sins... Trusting in Christ, submitting to Jesus as Lord, those things all happen secretly. 
invisibly in the heart. But the way we draw a line in the sand publicly, the way we confess to ourselves and to others that our hearts have changed and that we are ready to follow Christ is through baptism. Spurgeon called baptism our crossing of the Rubicon. Remember Caesar crossed the Rubicon to take control of the Roman Empire? He said if Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he knew there would never be peace between him and the Senate again. Yet Caesar draws his sword and he throws away his scabbard. Such is the act of baptism to the believer. It is the crossing of the Rubicon. It is as much to say, I cannot come back again to you. I am dead to you. And to prove I am, I am absolutely buried to you. I have nothing more to do with the world. I am Christ and Christ forever. This is why baptism should be a very special and important moment in our lives. We shouldn't put it off. Until we are baptized, we can play games with the Christian faith, sometimes acting as if we're Christian, sometimes acting as if we're not. But once you've been baptized, you have declared your allegiance. You have made your confession. You have declared who you know to be Lord and who you are trusting in for salvation. Throughout history and in some places today, to come up from the waters of baptism is to have a price Put on your head. So count the cost. And then if you haven't, confess Jesus as Lord through baptism. Number two, we confess that Jesus is Lord through our church membership. Through our church membership. In the New Testament, especially in Acts, but also in 1 Timothy 5, also in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, we see that records were kept of who was a part of the church of Christ. Through church membership and through active participation in a local church, a person showed to the world that they were not ashamed to be counted as one of Christ's followers. Church membership identified a person as one of Christ's people, a Christian, one who believes that Jesus is Lord of the universe was also a way of having accountability so that if you begin to fall back into a life of rebellion into a life of disobedience you have people around you who are committed to calling you back to repentance and faith third we confess that jesus is lord through taking the lord's supper as we're about to do in just a few moments every time we come to the lord's table and take the Lord's Supper, we are confessing not only that He is our Savior and our only hope of heaven, but we are also confessing that we believe Him to be the Lord of the universe, the King Most High, the ruler over all with power to save. We are preaching the gospel to ourselves as we take the bread and the cup, but we are also preaching the truth that because of his death, we believe he will bring history to its end and he will bring you and me safely to the streets of heaven. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are confessing before all, before ourselves, before one another, before God, Jesus is Savior, but also 
Jesus is Lord. Number four, we confess that Jesus is Lord when we pray. When we pray. Why would we pray to Jesus at all if we don't believe that he not only hears our prayers but is able to answer them? This is what makes prayer so wonderful. Every time we go to God in prayer, every time we pray to Jesus or pray in Jesus' name, we are declaring our faith that he is able to fulfill every request we make. Faith in the heart is evidenced through prayer. This is a great test to see whether or not you really believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe and is able and willing to care for you. Do you pray? This is why prayer should be like breathing to the Christian. If our Savior, if the lover of our souls is also the King of the world, why would we not go to Him with everything, big, small, and in between? Especially when he said that it's his delight to hear and answer our prayers. Number five, we confess that Jesus is Lord through our singing. Through our singing. What have we sung this morning? Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor, girded with praise. From the beginning, we are singing these songs of praise to King Jesus. When we gather on Sundays, we gather as a family to sing the praises of our Lord. Until Jesus comes back, his people will always keep gathering like this on his day to sing his praises and to confess together in joyful song that Jesus reigns. By the way, does the way you sing reflect your confidence and your joy that Christ is king? If we're not singing out, if we're the what are we communicating, even to our young ones, about how we feel and about how deep our confidence is and how great our joy that our Savior is Lord? Bold singing is bold confession. Weak singing is weak confession. We are confessing the lordship of Christ as we sing. Let's be bold. Even if our singing is more like squawking, let us squawk boldly. Number six. We confess that Jesus is Lord through our witnessing. Through our witnessing. Think about that word witnessing. All of us are called to bear witness to what Christ has done for us. We are to be ready when opportunities come our way to share with others what Jesus has done for us. You do not have to be a scholar to witness. In fact, even the greatest scholar cannot bear witness to what God has done for you better than you can bear witness to what God has done for you. Only you can tell your story. 
Only you can share with others how the sovereign Lord Jesus opened your eyes and changed your heart and you were going this way and He got a hold of you and He brought you to Himself and He turned you this way. We confess Christ when we tell that story. It should be our favorite story to tell. And it's one of the ways that we confess Christ as Lord. Number seven. I told you we'd go fast. Number seven, we confess that Jesus is Lord through our work ethic. Through our work ethic. You see, it ought to make a difference when you come to believe that you will one day give an account to Jesus for the work that you do. If you are only accountable to your boss... If you are only accountable to those in authority over you, that should be enough motivation to get you to strive for excellence. But how much more motivation should we have when we know that our striving for excellence pleases the Lord? In Colossians 3, 23, 24, whatever you do, work heartily. I love that word. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So dear friends, the way you work shows whether or not you believe that Jesus is Lord, able to fully reward you for all of your time and energy and effort spent in good callings. Others may not see your sacrifices. Your boss may promote all the wrong people. You may not get the raise you deserve. Or you may find yourself in a noble, worthwhile cause that our world doesn't value and doesn't reward well. But you are serving Christ. And He has rewards to give that are far better than silver or gold. And when people ask you why you work so hard and why you give so much, you should be able to confess before them, I am working for King Jesus. Every one of these could be a sermon. Number eight. Number eight. We confess that Jesus is Lord through our priorities. Through our priorities. Submitting to Jesus as Lord means that his values and his purposes become our values and our purposes. So one of the chief ways that others see that you believe Jesus is Lord is that suddenly family and church and missions and the poor and widows and orphans and your brothers and sisters in Christ, these all become very important to you. Your money starts going more towards others and less towards yourself. Your time, your energy, your emotion becomes tied up in Christ's church and the cause of Christ and how you can help this missionary over there or how you can help the the Baptist children's home over here or how you can serve your lost neighbor over there. You're not who you used to be. What you value is change. You're a new creation and you're submitting your priorities now to Christ's priorities. And His priorities are trumping yours and becoming yours. 
Number nine. We confess that Jesus is Lord through our self-denial. Our self-denial. Jesus said that those who would come after him must take up their cross. And once we believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is able to reward us fully and that serving him brings great contentment and joy, we start learning the art of self-denial. It is our confidence in Jesus as Lord, our confidence in his willingness and ability to fulfill every promise he's made to us that gives us the freedom to sacrifice now, to do without now, to even be risky with our lives now. Because we know whose hands we're in. Some of our wants and desires get put on the shelf so that we can meet the needs of others. And by the way, we live in a world that does not understand self-denial. You want to be subversive? You want to be a rebel? You want to be different in this world? Don't live for yourself. Boggles the mind of this world. Our world doesn't understand why we would deny ourselves in order to serve Christ and his people and his cause. But it does tell the world one thing. This Jesus Christ must really matter to us. And he does. It is because we believe that Jesus is Lord that we can store up treasures in heaven and be radical givers and radical servants while we're here on earth. Number 10. We confess that Jesus is Lord through the way we handle our suffering. Through the way we handle our suffering. How many times have Christians endured great suffering and through it all been a mighty witness to others about the Lordship of Jesus Christ? When Christians in the midst of great pain or great tragedy or terminal illness are able to testify that they have peace and comfort in the promises of their Lord, that is a powerful witness. By the way, few things are more of a terrible witness than the Christian who is constantly complaining and griping about their every ache and their every pain. We are to be those who know that our Lord sits on the throne and that every ache and every pain that we experience is part of His plan to do our souls eternal good. We may not know the whys and the why nots, but we know the who. And we know that Jesus would never bring anything into our lives that He will not give us the grace to endure through faith. And therefore, we receive our lot with faith and not with complaining. We also know that Christ told us ahead of time that the way to glory will always include a measure of suffering and that he set the example first. If Christ was able to endure the cross without complaining but entrusted himself to to God, We should show our faith in his lordship by enduring the suffering that comes our way with quiet faith and dignity. We know who holds our souls in his hands. It is our confidence in the lordship of Christ that allows Christians 
to weather suffering in a way different than this world can ever weather it. Number 11. I don't have 11 fingers. Number 11. We confess that Jesus is Lord through the way we handle wrongs done to us. Through the way we handle wrongs done to us. Christians, like all people, will sometimes have wrongs done to them. But we should not respond to being wronged the way the world responds. The world likes to seek revenge. The world wants blood for blood. You offend me, I'll sue you. That's the attitude of the world. But we believe that our good king sees everything. And Jesus will make sure that justice is upheld on the right day. We don't have to seek revenge. We can love our enemies and turn the other cheek and give them our cloak and our tunic too. We can pray for our enemies. We can seek our enemies good. We can be more concerned about the welfare of our enemies than we are about our rights. Why? Because we know whose hands we're in. And we know that righteousness will be upheld on the last day. And we know that Jesus fights for his people. We can leave that to him. Responding to those who do us wrong with love and forgiveness and with greater concern for them than for our own rights is one of the most powerful, just, it just shows itself to the world. These people are different. This is the kind of life that makes people come up to you and give you that 1 Peter 3.15 opportunity, right? Tell me about the hope that you have. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. Finally, number 12, and perhaps the most powerful way that we confess that Jesus is Lord is through the way we approach death. Through the way we approach death. I can think of little that says more to the world about our belief that Jesus reigns and that we are safe in his loving hands than us approaching death without fear. In fact, I think there are a few things more comforting than reading the last words of many godly believers. I have about 50 of these in my office. I chose three, so three. General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Any of you know General Stonewall Jackson? He said, I see from the number of physicians that you think my condition dangerous, but I thank God if it is his will, I am ready to go. And then he said this, it is the Lord's day. My wish is fulfilled. I have always desired that I would die on a Sunday. (laughs) The Puritan John Owen I came to the end of his life with these words. He said, I am going to him whom my soul loves, or rather, he has loved me with an everlasting love, and that is the sole ground of all my consolation. How we need Christians going to their deaths, proclaiming to their doctors and their nurses and all of the people around them that they have been loved by Jesus with an everlasting love and that the Jesus who loves them sits on the throne and will bring them safely through death into the glories of heaven. 
Nothing says more about the Lordship of Christ than a Christian confident in the face of death, which will be for many of us the hardest trial that we'll ever face. Charles Simeon smiled as he was lying on his deathbed. And he asked other people in the room around him, he said, what do you think especially gives me comfort at this time? And when no one answered, he exclaimed, it is the creation. I ask myself, did Jehovah create the world or did I? He did. Now, if he made the world and all the rolling spheres of the universe, he certainly can take care of me. Into Jesus' hands, I can safely commit my spirit. Mount Hermon, let us be a people confessing Jesus as Lord in life and in death. We can face life and death with peace and joy in our hearts because Christ is our Lord and Christ is the Savior who lived and died for us. So as we come to the Lord's table, We celebrate the truth that King Jesus is also the lover of our souls, the one whose blood washes away our every sin, the one who gives us peace with God. Amen? Amen.